Hello, and welcome to Colored Red and another year of Colored Red episodes. My name is Laura, and this month I'm going to be covering the history of the mafia in Colorado. Today's historical case will feed into my end-of-the-month episode focusing on the Smaldon family, which controlled Colorado's Northern Territory Mafia, including Denver. The sources for this episode today are two books that I've pulled from many times, Murder in the Mile High City by Linda Womack and Linda Jones, and Mountain Mafia by Betty Alt and Sandra K. Wells. Check out one of my previous historical murder cases about the Black Hand, the mafia group that controlled much of southern Colorado in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Crime in Denver and Colorado in general took a different turn in the 1920s and early 30s. For a long time, Denver and much of Colorado was under the control of the KKK. And check out my bonus episode about the KKK in Colorado for more information about that. But the KKK was in operation and prohibition was in full swing. So was the crime that ended up building up to the mafia in the United States and Colorado. And that crime was bootlegging. Bootlegging split Colorado into two mob-controlled halves, that of the north, which included Denver, and that of the south, which was largely centered around Pueblo. 1919 to 1933 was the most violent decade-ish in Colorado's history, and those two mob markets fought over the criminal activity of bootlegging and all of the murders that it involved. The story of the mob in Colorado cannot be brought up without mentioning Philip Van Sice, an incredibly important man in Colorado's history whose name seems to have been largely forgotten. Van Sice became Denver's district attorney in 1921 and immediately set his sights on bringing down the mob that was buying off Denver's police and politicians and business owners. At that time, the leader of the underground gambling, prostitution, and bootlegging game was a man named Lou Blonger. Blonger attempted to pay off Van Sice with $20,000, and Van Sice didn't take it. Instead, he got a new technology, a dictaphone, and somehow installed it in Blonger's office and used its recordings to bring down Blonger in a famous trial in 1922, where Blonger and 22 of his associates were convicted of various mob-related crimes and sent to prison. Van Sice then decided to go after the KKK, which in the 20s was well entrenched in Denver's politics, with the governor Clarence Morley being a part of it, as well as Denver's mayor Benjamin Stapleton. The KKK essentially had Denver's politics, industries, and businesses under their control, forcing people to bend to them and pay dues or be ousted. Van Sice helped introduce many bills to the Senate to abolish various Klan-based um, state entities, and Van Sice also ended up prosecuting Colorado's Grand Dragon, John Locke, for tax evasion, sending him to prison in 1926. Van Sice essentially steamrolled the Klan in Colorado. Governor Morley's secretary was then prosecuted for mail fraud, and then eventually Morley was too, and Morley's still the only Colorado governor to ever be sent to prison. And thus, the Klan was squashed in Denver, and they moved their headquarters to Canyon City, and the rest of that can be heard in my episode about the KKK. Van Sice went against two groups who basically controlled the entire city and wrapped it in criminal activity, and he brought them down despite misgivings from his peers. 
a feat that I think earns him some recognition. But unfortunately for bootlegging in the mob, a new boss simply took the place of the old one, and operations started again. For all of the things that Van Sice accomplished, not everything could be controlled and prosecuted by him. And of course, his tenure as Denver DA uh, came to an ending point. And unfortunately for bootlegging in the mob, a new boss simply took the place of the old one and operations started up again. Giuseppe Roma, also known as Joe Roma, stepped up to take over the crime mob of Denver, particularly the bootlegging aspect, which was by far the most profitable. Roma set up grocery stores in the Italian neighborhood of North Denver, and the Denver Vice Squad quickly figured out that his shops were fronts for booze running. Roma and his brother in law, Frank Greco, ran an illegal booze still out in Gilpin County to the west, which at that time was basically lawless and not policed at all. They used fresh mountain water coming down from the mountains, and they stored their booze in abandoned mountain mines that were only reachable by rough trails. The residents of Gilpin County largely knew about this business going on, and they enjoyed the generous amounts of money left on their doorsteps to stay quiet. Some residents even helped the bootleggers with things like towing their cars, and they lived symbiotically in this area. Joe Roma would prove to be a pretty ruthless man, barely over five feet tall. He was known as Little Caesar. His competitors didn't respect him or fear him, they just completely hated him, and thus began the bloodbath. Close to three dozen murders would be associated with the bootlegging scheme in Colorado for the next decade, including that of Detective George Klein, who headed up the bootleg squad for the police. He was shot to death in his yard on August 29, 1919. Fourteen of the deaths um, that would occur would occur in Denver and 15 in Pueblo, and the rest of them occurred in other parts of the state. Four of the victims would be Denver police officers or federal agents. Joe Roma worked really closely with the Southern Mob Boss Brothers based out of Pueblo. They were called Sam and Pete Carlino until a territory dispute pulled them apart and they became rivals and their dispute led to violence. At one time, Roma tried to bring everyone together in their love of crime and he held a meeting with 20 mob boss leaders in the back of his grocery store on Cuevas Street, January 24th, 1931. But the Denver Vice Squad somehow knew about this really convenient meeting of all the mob bosses in the state, and they raided it, arresting several men present. Uh, Several historians believe that this raid actually increased the rivalry and the mistrust between the gangs, and the gang wars basically went on to escalate. And Joe Roma and the Carlino brothers appear to have made a truce during this meeting, but only for a little while. Sam Carlino ended up being gunned down in the kitchen of his North Denver home on May 8, 1931. Joe Roma provided an alibi. Pete Carlino was arrested on conspiracy to commit arson, but his $5,000 bail was posted by none other than Joe Roma on June 23, 1931. But three months later, on September 13th, Near a bridge 20 miles um, south of Pueblo, Pete Carlino was found shot to death. Uh, He had three bullet wounds, two in the back and one in the head. Joe Roma was, of course, the primary suspect again, but again, he had an alibi. And he was never charged with the murders of either Carlino brother, but he was certainly suspected of having something to do with it. 
Roma found himself at the top of his game, but with a growing list of enemies, including another mob family, the Smaldon brothers, who also operated out of North Denver, and all of their operations were kind of located in the Highland and Sunnyside neighborhood areas, where a business of theirs still remains. Joe Roma made a nice living for himself, undaunted for a couple of years, but was eventually caught and prosecuted for bootlegging in January of 1933. But he only faced a hefty fine for this, which he of course paid and then got right back in business, but only for a couple weeks, because on February 18th, 1933, Joe Roma thought he was alone in the living room of his bungalow house at 3504 Vallejo Street. Around noon, he was shot to death and left sitting in his favorite chair in his living room. He was 38 years old. His wife, Nellie, returned home and thought that he was just kind of slumped over sleeping until she attempted to wake him and couldn't. Then she noticed a pool of blood forming under his body. And apparently, Nellie wasn't that observant because when police arrived and surveyed the scene, They saw that he had been shot seven times, and six of the bullets went into his head and out the back, and his blood and brains were sprayed all over the wall behind him. They also noted that his beloved mandolin was still clutched in his hands, as he had either been playing it or holding it when he was shot to death. Shell casings were found in two parts of the room, indicating that he was probably shot in a crossfire of bullets from two people, and what's more... There was no forced entry, so he was shot by men he knew and potentially men that he considered associates of his. Nellie made a statement to the Rocky Mountain News that ran on the front page on February 19, 1933. And this statement said, No stranger could have gotten into the house. Joe wouldn't let a stranger in. I don't know who did it. I don't know of anyone who was coming to see him or of anyone expected. This article went on to describe Nellie in great detail, as creepily many newspapers did back then. And it said, The beautiful head with its faultlessly featured Madonna face. Her hair is raven black and clusters in waves and curls about her brow, framing her face and emphasizing the clearness of her almond-toned complexion. Her figure is slight and girlish and her eyes black and velvet soft. The youthful widow sobbed. I loved him so much, so much. Oof, am I right? So the funeral was a bit of a spectacle. Um, The start of the service was in the very living room at his home that Joe Roma was shot in. He was laid to rest in a $3,000 polished copper casket with a glass dome so his body could be viewed. He was surrounded by massive, massive flower arrangements that were placed in ways as to cover the bloodstains that were still all over the walls. The casket was then carried out to an awaiting hearse where it traveled to Crown Hill Cemetery, followed by two flatbed trucks carting the enormous array of flowers. Over 2,000 people attended the service, and Joe Roma's body was entombed in the Tower of Memories without the blessings of the Catholic Church. The Denver Post ran a story about Joe Roma and his casket, describing him as a little shrimp who looked like an errand boy for a department store. Police interviewed three suspects who were at the top of their list because they were identified by Nellie Roma as having arrived at the house before Nellie left to visit her mother. 
All three led their own small and growing gangs in Denver, and all might have had reason to turn on Roma and kill him because he threatened their underground businesses. They were James Spinelli, Eugene Smaldon, and Luis Brindisi. All three men said they left the house and left Joe Roma alive. They even went to see a movie together, supposedly, and they could produce their ticket stubs, which I guess was all that was required. No more leads ended up surfacing, and the Denver Post wrote a story saying, Joe Roma's assassination emphasizes that crime never pays. The big shot of today in the gang world is the bullet-riddled target of tomorrow. Greed and envy flourish in gangland. Honor among crooks is an illusion. If they had any honor, they wouldn't be crooks. So the police weren't necessarily breaking their backs to find out who had murdered Joe Roma, and Joe Roma's murder was never solved. But many believe that the family who had the most to gain was the Smaldon family, who proceeded to rise to Denver's gang, uh, complete control, and who will be the subject of my end-of-the-month episode. The last murder to end this 15-year mob-related murder spree was that of August Marino on May 5th, 1933. He had been walking on crutches due to being shot in the neck and legs only five months prior, and he apparently took a ride from a fellow gangster who then shot him in the exact spot um, that he was shot five months earlier, only this time he died. His body was dumped north of Denver, and he marked the 33rd known gang member to die over Colorado bootlegging, where coincidentally the number 33 seems to be a pattern. On December 5th, 1933, prohibition was repealed, but the gang violence, of course, didn't end there. I'll have a picture of Joe Roma's body in the living room on uh, Instagram, and that's at Colored Red Podcast. If you enjoy my podcast, please go to patreon.com backslash colored red podcast. And if you donate just $1 per month, you'll get a card and a sticker from me. So that's it for today. Uh, stay tuned for the end of the month episode. And until next time, everybody. Mm-hmm.